Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Zillions of dollars. We all have those enemies in our life. Those who have wronged us, used us, belittled us, abandoned us, hurt us. If I were to mention your nemesis name this morning, it would make you angry. The very thought of her makes your skin crawl. Much that we keep stored in boxes is not valuable to anyone but us. Ticket stubs, dried up corsages, graduation programs that have no monetary value at all. And yet we keep collecting, preserving memories of important occasions. There are happy memories and sad memories, perhaps even some bitter memories. We remember angry words and hurt feelings. The relative who didn't come to our wedding. The daughter-in-law who told us to butt out. We keep these in our mental storage boxes and we get them out from time to time, reliving the painful experiences. Isaiah 43 25, God says to his people, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will remember your sins no more. All those terrible things that we've done, God cancels them and wipes them out. He doesn't stuff them in a drawer just in case he wants to drag them out again to jog his memory. He obliterates them can't even remember them anymore. Jesus today is going to ask you to do the hardest thing that you have ever done. And Jesus has asked some hard things, hasn't he, in the Gospels. To the rich young ruler, he said, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. To all disciples, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Those are hard things. He says to Simon Peter, get out of the boat and walk with me on the waves. Those are terribly hard things. But Jesus asked the hardest thing this morning when he says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. The word of God for you today is that we are to be as gracious to our enemies as God is to us. We are to be as gracious to our enemies as God is to us. Preacher Fred Craddock tells the story. I remember he says, the man down the road from our farm killed our dog. The dog's last name was Dempsey, in honor of the famed fighter at the time, Jack Dempsey. Now, Dempsey was just a mutt, but he was our only dog. And this man down the road, he just killed Dempsey. He was a strange man. He didn't like dogs. He didn't like kids. We told our father when he came home, Mr. Cook, he just killed Dempsey today, Daddy. 
My dad immediately put on his coat and his hat and he handed out the door and all the kids yelled, yay, we're going to get Mr. Cook. He was gone a long time. Mother got real worried. Maybe things didn't go like dad had planned. And finally he came in, he had blood all over his shirt. We asked, what happened? What happened? Did you get, get him real good? He said, I didn't know Mr. Cook has epilepsy. He was having a seizure when I walked in and he was chewing his tongue and I just stayed there and, and cared for him until it all passed. I remember the kid said, well, that's good, dad, but you're going to go back when he's better and beat him up. Right, dad? Right? I mean, he killed our dog, says Craddock. I just don't understand some people, my dad. How do you let that go? He killed our dog. Today's word is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a removal of personal barriers within a relationship caused by wrongdoing, real or imagined. On the one hand, and, and resentment and desire for revenge on the other. In our text this morning in Matthew 18, Peter poses a question in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and says, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jewish rabbis taught and perhaps Peter had learned that if a man sins once, twice, three times, you forgive him. But on the fourth time, you do not have to forgive. Three strikes and you're out. It said in the book of Amos over and over again, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For three, no, you hit four. God says, I will not revoke the punishment. So it had become common in ancient Israel to think that, well, you forgive your brother three times, but on the fourth time, no forgiveness is required. So Peter thinks he's learned grace from the Son of God. Seven times, he's added three more times. He thinks he's being a good guy. But the idea that forgiveness, which is the very heart of the gospel, thinking that it has boundaries is not clear thinking for Peter. Jesus replies in verse 22, I say to you, up to seven times, not seven times, but the best translation is 77 times. 77 times. The text comes from <coughs> Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis 4, verse 22, we read, As for Zillah, she gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. In Genesis, it goes something like this. We have Tubal Cain, who's a forger of implements. He's made a crude sword. His father Lamech picks it up. Ada and Zillah, his wives, are his captive audience. He's feeling pretty powerful with this new sword made by his son. He begins swinging it around as some of our earliest poetry. And he says, Listen to me, my wives. 
If God holds seven times the vengeance, then I, by my power, will hold 77 times. The whole point is this, that Jesus, knowing Genesis very well, he took Lamech's song of unlimited revenge and turns it into a message of boundless forgiveness. The Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the construction is exactly the same, 77 times. This early poem about payback is now a parable about pardoning. Jesus reverses Lamech's wild revenge. So Jesus tells a parable in two acts. The first one begins in, in verse 23. He starts out with, out with, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Mithian gospel is the most Jewish gospel, and therefore, when you might read in the other gospels, the kingdom of God, and Matthew being respectful as a Jewish gospel of not overusing God's name or inappropriately using God's name, the word heaven is substituted usually in Matthew for, for kingdom of God. So the kingdom of heaven, he says. The other gospel writers, kingdom of God, but Matthew, kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven goes something like this. Like parables of old, the king is usually God. And the king wants to settle accounts. It's April the 15th. We all know that day. It's pay up or be punished. And one particular man in the kingdom owes 10,000 talents. Now, I don't know how to make you understand how much money that is. So I entitled it zillions of dollars because that's what it is. According to Josephus, who lived in this first century, when this is being said... The taxes of Judea, Idumea, Samaria, Galilee, and Perea all combined together amounted to 800 talents, and this one guy owed 10,000 talents. One day's wage was a denarius. One talent was 6,000 denarii. This, therefore, this individual owed 60 million denarii. I did the math. If he didn't work on the Sabbath, but worked every other day, he would have to work 5,476.9 lifetimes to pay back this debt. He owed zillions of dollars. Perhaps he was a high-level member of the financial arm of the kingdom. Maybe he was responsible for collecting all the tax from, from Persia. I don't know, but his debt was unfathomable. The first thing we learned in the Gospels is we are in deep debt to God. First of all, we are in deep debt to God. And the second great truth of the Gospel is this. Our debt is so deep, we have no way to pay it. He owes zillions of dollars. 10,000 talents. But look at verse 25. But since he did not have means to repay it, the king says, sell him into slavery. Sell his wife into slavery. Sell his kids into slavery. And of course, selling himself and his family wouldn't be a drop in the bucket of how much money that he owed. It was showing the seriousness of the sentence. And the man begs, verse 26, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. 
The king is immeasurably graceful. He asked for patience and time to repay, and he received a pardon and forgiveness for the dead. We owe God a deep debt. It's so deep we cannot repay the debt. And thirdly, we receive forgiveness from a gracious king. We receive forgiveness from a gracious king. Verse 27 is one of the most beautiful verses in all the New Testament. The Lord had compassion on the slave and just canceled the debt, forgave him all that debt. However enormously cruel kings of old could be, they could be extravagantly generous as well. The loan is not extended. The loan is canceled. That's act one. Act two. Act two begins in verse 28 with the adversative conjunction, but... Sometimes that conjunction turns a whole story on his head. Act two, the slave went out and found one of his lower slaves who only owed him a a hundred denarii, a hundred days wages, three and a half months worth of work, not zillions of dollars. And he grabbed him up and he says, you repay me everything that you owe me. In verse 29, that slave pleads. It's the same language used by the one who grabs him by the collar Please, please, just give me more time, and I will repay you. And of course, while the zillion dollars could never be paid with 5,700 and some odd lap times, he only owed three and a half months worth of wages. Most of us owe more than that. He could have repaid it. Please, just give me some more time. But he was unwilling, and he threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Now, the the story turns sour right here, doesn't it? Even while he's basking in the sunshine of the forgiveness of the king, he grabs a man who owes him just a little and throws him in prison. When you compare verse 26 and verse 29, it's the same language. Could he not hear his own words ringing in his ears when the man says, just give me some more time and I'll repay you? Our guilt before God is unendingly greater than any other person's guilt before us. Our guilt before God is unendingly greater than any other person's guilt before us. He owed zillions of dollars. This man owes about three months. And yet he refuses to forgive. You remember the Lord's Prayer? And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's all over Matthew's Gospel. In fact, we never say the ending of the Lord's Prayer, but here's how the Lord's Prayer ends. For if you do not forgive other people their sins, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your sins. If you refuse to forgive your brother, then your Father will refuse to forgive you. That's the way it ends. Or elsewhere in Matthew, it says, Matthew 7, 2, For the measure that you measure out to others in mercy and judgment, you yourself we measured. I read this story. I don't like that servant. He's a horrible character. Jesus sets us up in act one so we won't like the guy and we bite the bait. He's awful. 
He has been forgiven zillions of dollars by a gracious king who said, just forget it. I'll wipe your debt clean. And then the one who's been forgiven goes out, grabs the other fellow by the collar who owes him so little and says, you will repay me all. I don't like that guy at all. Jesus has set up the story so I won't like him and you won't like him and we don't like him. And then all of a sudden you realize as you read the story, I am that guy. God has forgiven me so much. You so much. And yet we hold the sins of others against them. Jesus asks you a hard thing today. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5. For some of us, we'd rather he ask us to walk on water. Someone might say, Pastor, if they don't ask, do I have to forgive if he doesn't repent, if she doesn't ask? That's the wrong question, isn't it? Can he repent if I don't forgive? You remember when Jesus himself is dying on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, who at that point in the narrative has asked for forgiveness? His Pilate come down to the cross for ask for forgiveness? Have the soldiers who are gambling over his garments, have they asked for forgiveness? Have the disciples who are afraid and they ran, have they asked for forgiveness? No one, no one has repented or asked for forgiveness. And yet Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Who knows, maybe by forgiving your enemy, he may repent, become all that God wants him to be. Years ago, a national-wide poll was taken, what are the words, what word or phrase would you most likely to hear uttered to you sincerely? What word or phrase would you like to hear most sincerely uttered to you? Number one, you would have guessed it, I love you. Number two is, you are forgiven. And number three is, supper's ready. <laughs> I love you. God's unconditional love. You are forgiven. God's unmerited grace. Supper's ready. God's unsurpassed invitation to come to the table. When you choose not to forgive, ironically, you become the victim over and over again. The deed of your enemy locks you into a painful past, a past which you cannot let go, and he or she lives rent-free, has space in your head. They're in your thoughts, your dreams, your imagination. The enemy wins again when you refuse to forgive. It was a September the 28th. I did a funeral for Lucille Mitchell. Often ask the family for the deceased Bible. Sometimes they'll leave little clues or say something in their Bible they want the pastor to see. Or maybe you'll find a passage that's been highlighted 12 times and you'll preach that passage. You, the Bible sometimes tells the story. And they gave me Lucille Mitchell's Bible. And I opened it up. And right in the front, the first page we opened up, it said... A good forgetter is a blessing. A good forgetter is a blessing. She sat right over here in a wheelchair. She and her husband 
Roy. So I ask, what does that mean? Why does she write in her Bible, a good forgetter is a blessing? I ask her husband, Roy, and daughters, Darlena, and Sharon, and Sandra, and Kim, what does that mean? A good forgetter is a blessing. Well, they said that in addition to having those four girls, that they had had a son. Their marriage started one time when Roy saw her. He didn't even know her name, and he shouted out loud, that's the woman I'm going to marry. Didn't even know her name. He told me the secret to successful long, long marriage was two words, yes and darling, which Lucille taught him very early in, in the relationship. They eloped, as that generation did. It's a whole lot cheaper than paying for a wedding. You don't knock it. They eloped. Her mother was in on it. Her mother gave them all she had in savings, which was $5. They started their marriage that way. But in addition to these four girls, they had a son by the name of Gary. When Gary was 35 years of age, sitting in his car at a spotlight in Houston, he was on a frontage road of I-10. A man came up behind him with a 20-gauge pump shotgun and shot him like a coward while he was stuck in traffic in the back of the head. Now, I didn't just take the family's word on it. I went all the way back to 1985, the newspaper in Houston, and I found the story. It was true. It had happened just like they said it had happened. And what makes matters worse in a twist of injustice, the murderer walked scot-free. He got off. In fact, I found in the, the Houston paper, prosecutor Karen Morris back in 1985 said, the jury's verdict is absolutely absurd. Now, can you imagine how Roy felt as a dad? Not only had their boy been murdered, but the murderer had walked scot-free. The life of their son had ended while the life of the murderer was barely interrupted? Can you imagine the responsibility you would feel as a father to even the score, to write the accounts, to get revenge? Can you imagine the hate and the anger pumping through your red blood and veins? That's all that Roy and Lucille felt after the trial. And a fellow church member here from First Baptist, who they really didn't know all that well, Bill Sherwood, walked in to visit with Roy. And Roy was ready with rage to go with the gun and even the score. And Bill said, Roy, you can't do this. It'll ruin your family. Revenge is mine, saith the Lord. Roy, there's another court where justice always happens. He's gotten away with nothing. Roy, you're going to have to somehow let this go. And on that day, Lucille got up, went over and grabbed her Bible, and wrote in the front, a good forgetter is a blessing. I'm glad I asked how they got in the front of the Bible. 
And I said, well, Roy, who was it that killed your son? He said, Pastor, maybe you're not understanding. We chose to forget. If he were to walk in this room right now and sit down beside you and call his name, I would not recognize it. I have chosen to forget it. A good forgetter is a blessing. If you knew tomorrow would be the last day of your life and you could only extend grace to one person and be the gracious king who forgives the zillions, who would you call? And what would you say? And why are you waiting? Let us pray. Oh God, everybody in this room rejoices that you have a good forgetter, that you have chosen as the Asianic passage says, to remember our sins no more. We're all the bad character in this story. We all have owed you zillions of dollars, unable to repay, and you have forgiven, and yet we go out and every wrong done against us, some big, some small, we harbor the hate in our hearts. And we demand payment. Oh God, because and only because you have chosen to forgive and forget, do we have the power to do so. And only people who embrace the gospel have this power. Amen.